Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. This is our final of the Sherlock Selects episodes for the season, and um, we're really, really excited today to share with you one of our favorite stories. This was Josh's selection. It is, of course, The Adventure of the Copper Beaches from The Adventures of Sherlock mm. Holmes, the first collection of stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So thank you. Thank you very much for joining, and uh, we hope you'll you'll enjoy this review. Uh, Josh, why why did you go for this one, buddy? I mean, there's a lot of stories to choose from, obviously, and mm-hmm. from ones that I really liked. But I still think this is my favorite Sherlock Holmes story. Um, I just like the whole gothic horror element of it. I like the change of pace, which is very refreshing to me, where we get more of a perspective of like the client more so than Holmes mm-hmm. in this story. Um, similar to True, the engineer's yeah. thumb, mm-hmm. uh, we get to see things from the perspective of the of the um, client. In this case, uh, Miss Violet Hunter, one That's of the right, many yeah. Violets of uh, the Holmes canon, and uh, probably one of the best, immortalized by Natalia Richardson. If you ever seen the Jeremy Brett series, uh, Natasha Richardson plays the role. Um, great actress who had a tragic ending, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and um, and I just remember you know being mesmerized by her performance in this sh- in the ser- in the show. Uh, but even before then, I was already you know yeah, Violet's an awesome c- character. Go Violet! That was my attitude all the way through mm-hmm. that story. Yeah, and totally. The, the, the adaptation yep. paid off in spades as well for me, um, especially with Joss Ackland as uh, you know the patriarch. Mm-hmm. So Jethro. Jethro, yeah. Sorry, Jeffro, not Jethro. Jeffro, Jeffro, Jeffro. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. This this is a, this is the Jeffro in um, in the Midlands or in uh, somewhere in England, as opposed to you know uh, the Appalachians. So, mm-hmm. oh, Winchester, <laughs> different type of, down different type of Jethro. This Winchester. Story. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Let's just go back a bit. Yeah, so yeah. this is the a, this is the Jeff Fro more appropriate of like you know in Winchester down That's south right, as yeah. opposed to say the Appalachian Jeff Fro, <laughs> you know, with the th in there, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Our favorite uh, cousin from the Beverly Hillbillies. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, wow. You know, we are totally off the beaten pack. We're talking about Violet okay. Hunter. We're that's talking okay. about the electric blue dress. We're talking about <laughs> acting in front of a window. We're talking about kid pulling uh, the wings off flies. and We're talking a whole bunch of uh, creepy stuff in this story. And uh, I guess Appalachia and Deliverance kind of comes to mind, I suppose, in the gothic sense. So maybe it all yeah. fits together. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it does. But actually, Josh, you know, when, when you think about The Adventure of the Creeping Man, which was our previous um, Sherlock Selects episode that I, I had chose that story um, for presentation, when you think about that story... Holmes mentions in it the Copper Beaches, and in it he mentions this idea of being able to judge the parents or the family by the children's behavior, which is kind of uh, opposite to what Mm. is typically seen, right? Kids will reflect their parents, whereas in this case, uh, in the case of the Copper Beaches, Holmes reads into the the child's behavior and thinks that that might somehow um, cast you know, yeah, uh, telegraph like the parents are exactly, really yeah. too. So it's, it's really e- exactly. cool like, going the other way. And uh, another connection to the creeping man, which makes this a, a, a really great uh, companion piece is the, the importance of the dog, you know, Carlo, the Mastiff, poor Carlo, Carlo at the, the end, or, or as we yes. discuss in the episode, maybe Watson not shoots Carlo. a lot of dogs in the Holmes canon. He does. He does. Um, 
we, we, we get into that here, folks. So uh, if, if you're interested more, then, hey, you'll enjoy this episode where Josh and I talk about uh, Watson's penchant for uh, pulling the trigger on the canines. But Josh, and you made Jeff a good point. Rose, not and Jeff Rose, not Jeff Rose as yes. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And of course, uh, the awesome Miss Hunter. Mm-hmm. But you made a good point, Josh, about the, uh, I, I think, if I recall, it was, um, I want to say Little Dorrit. Or it might have been Nicholas Nickleby. One of those books involves uh, a pretty flagrant destruction of a dog. Uh, you mentioned it in the episode. I remember the note, but I don't remember oh, what Little book Dorrit. it was. Little, Little Dorrit. Dorrit. Yeah, I think you yeah. mentioned that. And there is this oh, sort yeah. of thing in Victorian literature, isn't there? That that it's quite consistent with the abuse of animals, and so uh, also in while, Dickens, Bill Sykes and his dog die at the same time as well. Yeah, that's true. If that's you remember a good one, yeah. when Bill yes, falls yeah. from the roofing. And, and gets uh, strangled. Uh-huh. The dog strangled, runs. Yeah. I, he 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 fall. He falls off and launches as himself. Dickens off the says, roof. "Off the roof, yeah." And his brains dash out or something mm. like that, right? So it's definitely mm-hmm. a connection with dogs and Victorian literature and like the animalistic and cruelty and whatnot. And uh, that's not very cool. No, of course not. It it isn't cool, but. We we raise the question about how humane Watson has been here at the end of the story. So I, I enjoyed and again, this conversation. It reflects about yeah. the children. Also, I mean, if, if if you know how they say, you know, a dog is as bad as its master. Mm-hmm. So ah, good. yeah, good point. Right? Yep. Yeah, but so, Carlo wasn't a good bad. correlation. No, I think he Carlo wasn't. was just. I think Carlo was just trying to look after himself because he was he was abused and uh, if 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 you know, well, whatever. But this story does have it yeah, all. Dogs everyone. will turn on you. Yeah. Exactly. Dog. Yeah. If you treat your dogs bad, they'll turn on you. Or, you know, if, if you abuse them, they'll lash out and act inappropriately more so than they would have been trained not to. So, you know, it's not the dog's fault in the end. It's just, it's the master's, right? Yeah. Calm assertive energy. That's what Caesar Milan preaches. Calm assertive energy. That's right. Well, this story does have it all, Josh. I think it was a really inspired choice on your part. And, um, you know, Good character, good client, great agency. It is, as you say, Strong Violet Hunter's story. Too. Strong thematics, Strong great thematics setting. Strong thematics. It's really good. Atmosphere. Uh, I, I still remember vividly, you know, I, while this story really appealed to me more so than anything, was the train ride uh, with Watson and Holmes going mm-hmm. down south, going mm-hmm. towards Winchester. And they're talking about how this was the ancient kingdom of England, you know, prior to, you know, 1066 and all that. This is where England, this was the pagan, home of pagan England, uh, you know, um, as it was known. And Holmes makes a whole point about how, like, there was this whole misrepresentation of the city being this, like, a hive of scum and villainy, to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then you have, you know, like, Holmes saying to Watson that, you know, there's stuff that goes on in the countryside that are, which is supposed to be this pastoral, peaceful place. In fact, there's a lot of stuff that you don't know about going on in the countryside more so than you would in the city where it's all in front of you. Mm-hmm. So I just really like that notion that no matter where you go, that, you know, it's very similar to like Joseph Conrad, you know, it's also a very colonial mindset, I suppose, is when you're going into the heart of darkness of man himself when you get further away from the urban, from the city, from civilization. Mm-hmm. And even though there's like the uh, tenets of civilization being presented to you, like in a, in a manor house in the middle of a plantation or something like that, all the stuff that goes on in there is outside the city, outside of law and order, yeah, and just as yeah. bad stuff can happen. So I just really like the symbolism of that, despite, you know, it does have some debatable aspects to it. Mm-hmm. I still found that that was one of the themes that was resonant in the story. And uh, yeah, I think this just makes Copper Beaches stand out to me uh, among a lot of the other Sherlock Holmes stories. 
Yeah, it's a really great yeah. story. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you have any final points because this is the end of our Sherlock Selects little mini series, but I've really enjoyed going back through the archives, pulling these mm. episodes out, kind of recutting them, editing them up a bit and just reminding ourselves of why we, you know, we really like these stories and we're, we're so very happy to share them once again, kind of renewed and revisited. It's been a lot of fun and I know they've just been little buffers and we do hope you've enjoyed them between our bigger reads so far this season. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here soon on Lighting the Pipes for a deep dive on Graham Greene's The Quiet American. And you also haven't seen the end of Sherlock Alex, so I'm sure we'll resurrect that again in the near future, <laughs> just like Arthur Conan Doyle did to Holmes himself after the <laughs> fall right. from Reichenbach. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Take care, everyone. Cheers. Uh, let's move on then to talk about the adventure of the Copper Beaches. You want to go through some publication review info pretty quick, and I'll do the same for my plot summary, and then we'll light our pipes. The adventure of the Copper Beaches was published in Strand Magazine in June 1892, a month after the previous story. Interestingly enough, the Copper Beaches was a, was one of a series of eight silent film adaptations of the home stories that were actually produced by Conan Doyle. Oh, And it is the only one that has survived, apparently. Is that so? Yeah. Although there wasn't a, uh, a Black Mastiff Carlo in the, in, in the story. And the whole point of the narrative was that so um, the faux Alice Rucastle was to um, lure um, the fiancé into the household to be killed by Rucastle himself. Very interesting. Perhaps they thought maybe the, the gothic horror aspect was probably a bit too alarmist at that time. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. What did Goodreads fans think of this one? The last of the Sherlock short stories in the collection I read, and my favorite. It had a very gothic feel about it sometimes. Hmm. Is not the classic good-for-nothing, fainting type, and the mystery is well set up. Plus, there's more of Holmes and Watson in this one than there has been for a while. And I really love the two. Okay. That was that person's review. Okay. Um, kind of a review and a little bit of a wish fulfillment there, I suppose, on her end. <laughs> um, this one was disappointing. There was potential for something rather intriguing, but instead it landed flat. The missing daughter. The secret misery of the lady of the manor, the mysterious watcher, the demented child, and not to forget the strange request of the overly zealous employer. All the greedy details could have slipped out carefully until the plot built to a frenzy. However, no attention was shown. Tension was broke, and two stars may be too generous. Two stars. Ouch. Mm, that, Ouch. That, that is a bit, that's a bit ouch, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. The main um, focus of the story takes place outside of Winchester in, in Hampshire, now, Winchester, if, if for those who do not know, is actually, it was an ancient English settlement for the longest time. But at first it was like the Belgic Celtae were there during before the Roman occupation when Caesar showed up. Um, it then became as the, the ancient English capital um, under Eckbert and then Alfred the Great. Uh, the, you know, it was the seat of the Saxon kings of England. And eventually Winchester Cathedral was built during this, during that time and before the capital was transferred over to London, Winchester was the seat of, of the um, British throne. It's a lovely city. Just, 
Have you been there? No, but um, my in-laws have, and I know people from work who have been there, and they, they're always telling me to go visit Winchester. And they say nice things about Durham as well, which is further north, because Winchester is right down by Southampton almost. Uh, and yeah, it's supposed to be a really pretty pretty place, and the cathedral is stunning, apparently, which is not surprising. <laughs> Yeah, when it comes to to England, that's one that's one of the places that I that that I have on my list. I want to go to is Winchester. Um, you know, I have London, I have Stonehenge, and maybe Wales, and maybe the Lake District. But Winchester Cathedral and uh, Winchester itself is it really interests me because of the history itself. So if I ever if I do show up, you know, in in a summer or two in Scotland, uh, we should definitely c- c- consider it. Yeah, it's a long way down, but you know, it can be planned. It can be planned, right? Should uh, should I jump into the plot then, and then we can get the pipes lit? Yes, let's light those pipes. Um, we'll uh, go clean them out, and you, and, <laughs> and you do the uh, summary, okay? Okay. The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. As a morning fog rolls over the streets in early spring, Holmes and Watson sit warm and cozy inside. Well, warm at least. Holmes is irritated. We know this because he laments over the state of Watson's penchant for narrative embellishment with respect to the adventures that they've shared, and which are now being published within the world of the stories. It is into this environment of mysterious fog and intertextuality that Miss Violet Hunter enters the story, following her letter of the day before. In equal parts irritable and hospitable, Holmes welcomes her, flicks on the stage lights, and waits to be inspired. The story brought by the attractive young governess is indeed an interesting one. About to take a job down Winchester Way, some 70 miles from London, Violet Hunter's spider sense is tingling, and she wants Holmes's opinion before setting off. You see... With her old employer moved on to Nova Scotia, Violet was looking for a new family to serve, so went to Westaways, a labor-pimping outfit that matches up suitable families to suitable girls, sort of like servant Tinder for posh folk. Anyway, standing in the office of her employer is a large, genial man who, delighted by her appearance immediately, offers Violet a job on the spot, and with considerable more pay than she'd have received from any similar post. Everything sounds great, only one bug-smashing kid to look out for, to look after, until Violet is explained why she will be so handsomely paid. It seems there are a few fads that he and his wife expect to be followed. 1. Wear a blue dress whenever we ask. 2. Participate in staged pantomimes in our drawing room. 3. Cut your hair short. Way short. Well, Violet explains to Holmes that while she's experimental enough to accept numbers 1 and 2, she lacked the kinkiness to cut off her own auburn locks. She was determined not to budge on that point and was shown the door with no small amount of shame. She returned home and immediately regretted her decision to refuse the job, but that didn't last for very long as the next day a letter arrived from the same gentleman, a Mr. Jeffro Rucastle of the Copper Beaches, Winchester, who felt as though she simply must reconsider and for the pains of removing her hair would be given an extra 20 pounds. Everything's for sale, it seems, even her beautiful hair. Violet accepts. Snip, snip, go the scissors, and chug, chug, goes the train to Winchester. But... Before setting off, as already established, she asks Holmes for his opinion. He indeed agrees that there's something fishy going on, but doesn't fear for her personal safety, so agrees that she should proceed and keep her eyes and ears open. He instructs her to communicate with him in the event of any trouble, so off she goes, securing the knowledge that the dynamic duo have got her back. Two weeks pass without a word. During this time, Holmes seems restless and unwilling to say more about the case than the odd muttering about not wishing his own sister to take up such a position. In his own way, we we suppose, he appears concerned for Violet. Given his own intelligence, or given her own intelligence and instinctive reasoning, rather, she probably won him over on some psychological level. 
She isn't just a regular girl playing helpless. There is something self-reliant about this hunter. So, it's no surprise... Or he's just bored. Or he's just bored. There's <laughs> no surprise, then, that when her telegram appears, he excitedly moves to action, and he and Watson soon find themselves answering the bat signal, as promised, and on their way to meet her in the Black Swan Hotel, where she'll reveal what's been happening. They get there. In a nutshell, things aren't right at the Copper Beaches. In addition to the drunk manservant Toller and his gormless wife, there's a deliberately starved mastiff named Carlo, the meanest of moonlight beasts, who's led out to patrol at night. The boy she looks after is a sadistic creature whose chief pleasures come from smashing insects and throwing hideous tantrums. Braids of identical hair to her own were found locked in a drawer. Violet also reveals that Mr. Jeffro Rucastle was as good as his word in asking her to dress up in blue and play house along with his vacant wife, but there's a geometry to the daily game that catches her curiosity. Always seated with her back to the window, she soon figured out, with the help of a broken vanity mirror, that there was a man outside the property gates looking in, and the performance appeared staged for his benefit. Holmes reveals his suspicion that she was brought to impersonate someone, and that hunch is strengthened when Violet confesses that she had entered the locked wing of the home and found a boarded-up door, behind which somebody was pretty obviously being held prisoner. Mr. Rucastle, on his way back to the living quarters, intercepts her and charmingly threatens to throw her to the dog if she ever sets foot in that wing again. For all these reasons and more, Violet is rethinking her employment status and agrees to lock Mr. S Mrs. Topper in the cellar while the Rucastles are away so that Holmes and Watson can scope out the joint. Well, they do just that and quickly conclude that behind the locked door in the Forbidden Wing was the room in which Mr. Rucastle was holding his daughter Alice, the girl that Violet was clearly meant to be impersonating. Alice, however, has escaped with her lover, Mr. Fowler, when the dynamic duo burst into the room. Lover, you say? Imprisoned Alice? Huh? Well, yes. Mr. Rucastle was imprisoning his real daughter because, wait for it, surprise, she was about to gain independent rights to her late mother's inheritance and daddy would rather hold on to the money than see his daughter married and happy with Mr. Fowler. Where have we seen this before? Well, yeah. So stressed was Alice over her father's pressure that she apparently contracted brain fever and needed all of her hair cut off. So hence, the strange request as part of Violet's contract. Well, some serious... Define brain fever. That's yeah. why I was... Well, I can do that. Uh, some... Serious karma comes calling on Mr. Rucastle. He releases the hungry Carlo from his pit, only to have him attack his own throat and nearly kill him. Never bite the hand that feeds, they say, unless that hand belongs to a dickhead that doesn't feed. For Carlo, it seemed worth it. And the episode comes to a blasting halt with one of Watson's best sentences in the canon to date. Quote, running up, I blew its brains out. End quote. Mr. Rucastle <laughs> survived, but was a broken man forevermore, we're told. And as for the resourceful Violet Hunter... Well, she moved on to become a successful head teacher of a private school. It seems like everybody got what they deserved in the end, except for Carlo. Then again, maybe the gunshot was still worth it in his case. Well, Rue Castle didn't really get what he deserved, if you think about it. I mean, yeah, we'll get into that, though. Yeah. That was just my general response to that declaration. Okay, why don't we just light these pipes and get straight to work? If you notice, they're already lit. Oh, you lit them, did you? Yourself. Well done. While you're doing your summation there, absolutely. Uh, I just thought you were cleaning them out. Well done. No, I cleaned them out and I lit them, passing you over, passing it over to you. Beautiful. And we'll continue that pantomime and <laughs> and delve into the principles. Okay, principles. Uh, I I like these guys here in this story. I like um, I like Watson's got some agency. You know, he shoots a dog. Uh, Man of action. But in this case, it's. You know, he puts he puts Carlo out of his misery, really, because Carlo's abused by Rucastle and Toller, 
and that's not cool. And so Holmes shooting the dog saves Rucastle uh, and makes him somewhat responsible to acknowledge what he's done for the rest of his life. And it saves Carlo a miserable future. So mm-hmm. there's a trend in Victorian literature where dogs suffer terribly. Um, in in Dickens' um, Little Dorrit, a dog is just randomly beaten to death in front of the main character for uh, just out of nowhere, really? um, just to just to show how much of a dick that per- that particular character was. Well, I think maybe there's something like that going on here with the dog being used to uh, to emphasize or to highlight, um, you know, the the meanness and the cruelty of this guy. Because which which Holmes kind of suggests to Watson that uh, by examining you know the offspring of such uh, individuals you can see exactly what the parents are like. Yeah, there's an interesting comment or two about that, isn't there? Like that's one of the things that Holmes uses in his deductive logic in figuring out that dad's not all there, or he's a bad guy, or something. Instead of the other way around, you know that the the the, the children are somehow representative of their parents here he suggests that the parents have learned their violent tendencies and their abusive ways through the kid and it's kind of backwards to me well it's backwards to our modern understanding of how it works i guess yeah i guess people are inspired by different things so holmes and watson i found are firing on all cylinders in this one holmes is bored and petulant at first criticizing watson and his trivial way of looking at their investigations there is good give and take be between them here Holmes feels he has reached the nadir of his career or so he jokes deprecatingly uh he shows some fraternal concern for Violet Hunter and is amusing in his petulance and his refusal to acquiesce to docility while he is used as a tool for the story's heroine Miss Hunter he has a strong presence throughout the story that transcends being of mere utility to the climax of the narrative um Watson banters and defends his position with Holmes eloquently and is a great sidekick in this one he's being the man of action and ending poor Carlo's existence um, and, you know, for doing them the favor of trying to tear out that asshole, I mean, Rucastle, it rhymes. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, yeah, throat. Um, I think it's one of the best pairings of our dynamic duo. So I give it a 4.5, half a point deducted as this is, this is Violet Hunter's story, not Sherlock's. That's a good point. Uh, I went 4.5, not necessarily for the exact same points, but I hadn't picked up on that. Well, yeah, I picked up on it cause it is very much Violet's story. Um, <laughs> Mm. Much like our engineer. You're right. You're very right. I wonder if that should bring it down a little bit more. Uh even. But no, I, I went four point five because I enjoyed the two of them when they were, you know, in the story. Sticking and with tradition. This is a Holmes and Watson story in the end. It is a Holmes and Watson story, but there are also Holmes and Watson real moments like sitting on the train and talking together about what Watson doesn't understand about rural life and that being the real frightening yes. place to live versus the city because the city is full of people who are witnesses whereas rural life, you know, brings more. And so all of that foreshadowing works well in the investigation too, but it gives us a nice a continuum from the the kind of there's a bit of tension between Holmes and Watson. I, I'm going to refer to it as tension because Holmes isn't happy about the way he's always perceived within the stories and how he sees that Watson's a little short-sighted in his uh, in his appetite to create a story of great pleasure for the reader. He misses the logic and the you know the the brilliance of the mind sometimes, and there's a tension there at work. Yeah, uh, just to go back to that really great bit. If I claim full justice for my art, it is because it is an impersonal thing, a thing beyond myself. Crime is common. Logic is rare. Therefore, it is upon the logic rather than upon the crime that you should dwell. 
you have degraded what should have been a course of lectures into a series of tales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, he sort of kind of takes this hard line away in a few paragraphs later, but you get, the, you, get you know, I just like this, this um, parcel of Holmes' character here. That he, Again, he's a flawed individual who has his own insecurities, and it, it, kind of, it takes off, you know, the golden patina on his armor, you know? It does. It does indeed. Um, there's something I want to talk about here, at which, I mean, we both agree that this is Violet Hunter's story, but it's still a Holmes and Watson adventure, and they're very good in it, which is why we're both going 4.5. But there's something that I want to use as a segue into the investigation scoring, if I might. And these are my own observations. They're not annotations, and so I'd like you to weigh in on them. And maybe the part of this is, you know, the English teacher or just the reader maybe coming out. I certainly don't think it's anything unique what I'm going to share, but I, I wonder how much of this you saw yourself. Um, this isn't like the first time that Sherlock has commented on the good doctor's penmanship, right? Like he's talked about Watson's storytelling and he's commented on the, the kind of hyperbolic features of it. It's so interesting from a critical point of view, for me at least, that this is the 12th and final story in a year of Strand publications. And if you think about the chronology of Holmes so far, two novels, 12 stories in, we've got a the central character now complaining about how these stories are written. I'm wondering through all this meta narrative, um, if we're getting the mind of Conan Doyle, uh, how much kind of, how much of this dialogue it between his characters is actually the author raising criticism of the time about his own stories. Is, is he, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is he using this as an opportunity now for his characters to address the story or the criticisms that the public or maybe the critics, which we are been in, unable to find in our own discussions, if if this is Conan Doyle letting his characters voice criticism of the time, and does that itself point towards um, an, the author wishing for a less genre-specific appetite from the reader? Because we know that Conan Doyle had a love-hate relationship with Sherlock Holmes, and although he would go on to write 45 more stories or whatever, is this the starting point two novels, 12 short stories in, where he's kind of wishing he could do something else now that the audience would like. It, I, I don't think it's that hard to believe that Doyle might be getting frustrated with it, only 14 texts into his relationship here with his character. Maybe he was already feeling trapped, I don't know, by the, by, by the creativity of, or sorry, by the popularity of the character. Um, yes. Do you think there's any, any line in that? Just as you outlined it, um... It seems like there is a subtext in, in there of uh, that could be allegorical in mm. this idea of the meta narrative, as you suggested, uh, yeah. going completely meta. Like the fact that these stories are are told through Watton's perspective in journals that exist in that world, uh, whereas we're actually reading it as Arthur Conan Doyle as Watson telling these stories. So there is a connection there, I think. Okay. Uh, whether or not uh, whole now. I don't know fully what Arthur Conan Doyle's feelings are on this matter. I think it is a love-hate. He could be very kind of amb- ambivalent in some ways, but also also enjoying the stories as well. Because I find when he puts this allegorical measure into the characters, it kind of uh, it, it, it boosts the story and, and the narrative, in, in my opinion, and the characters. And mm-hmm. perhaps Arthur Conan Doyle is inspired by this, and this is why he gets such strong writing when he brings these topics up. Aye. Uh, that this is what I'm wondering, and I'm extending this a little stretch further. Um, just indulge me for a second. It's only another uh, few lines of notes here I'm going to try to articulate. Okay, so 
We know how irritating a factor it was later in his relationship with Holmes, right? That he, he had to keep coming back to the same generic features when we know he was interested in other stories too, other in having recognition from other things he did. But it's interesting to see the early signs of it here. I, I think, you know, the Copper Beaches could be the most revealing uh, autobiographical Holmes story that we've seen yet. Symbolically, all kinds of fun, I think, could be had along this. Just think about it, right? Alice, locked away in the wing, waiting to be released, could represent the author's own desperation to cut himself free from the restrictions of the genre. Equally, Jeffro mm. Rucastle could be the controlling monster, like the public, full of smiles but sinisterly selfish. You know, they, they pay exceedingly well, see the connection, but they want to keep the pleasure firmly controlled. And the more I think about it, the more appealing it becomes as an interpretation for me. Yes. There's a struggle in this story, like a conflict that makes, I think, for really interesting reading, and particularly in terms of structure. Uh, the first few pages alternate two voices, right? you got Holmes the critic, Watson's exposition, which ignore critically the voice, and they move forward with the story, which is seemingly the very thing that, that Holmes despised. And the relationship <laughs> between the figure, Holmes, or Doyle, if you will, and the story, Watson and the public, is kind of really alive here in a fierce way. And they don't always affect a first or a casual reading of the story. So I guess that this might not be uh, a big factor for someone just picking up this story as a one-off. But I think now that we can position this as the last of the Strand publications for the, that, that first relationship and coming after two successful novels, I think that these self-referential features make the story really engaging to consider within the wider picture of Holmes and kind of where the author is. I think there's a lot of food here, a lot of nutrient that we can grow. Yeah, the, you, you can get a garden out of that for sure, Scott. Anyway, that, 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 that's my Very way. intuitive. That's my way into the into the investigation, which I gave a, a 4.5. I really like this one. I like the macabre elements of it. I thought we were going down an incest route, to be honest. I, I really thought it was going to go to that to that level, that grossness. Like that... like the peacocks? Like the peacocks? Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe not so much X-Files Season 4, but... Defin definitely in an uncomfortable place with Alice up in the room. Be and that being the reason why the son Jeffrey or whatever his name is was was so like maligned and so why why he was so sick and kind of ferocious. Flowers in the attic kind of a situation. Yeah, like the birth defects caused him to be an aggressive like monster. Like and and she keeps calling him creature. Right, you notice that. She keeps saying yeah. creature, not not like never calls him by name. We know his name because Rucastle uses it on one occasion, but. I thought there was room for that sort of genetic mutation thing going in there, and that would have made it a really creepy story. I was I was coming at it, I guess, from a modern modern read, but I went four point five. I thought this was a really interesting mm. and entertaining narrative. Like you said, it, it didn't get full points because it's Violet's story, not Holmes's, but because of these subtexts that I'm starting to pull pull out now, these elements of subtext and the conflict in the two characters, which I would. Uh, tentatively suggest could relate to a conflict within the author and his own production. I think that's really cool food for thought. It it helped me appreciate the story more and its darker elements. I saw... Yeah, you got to the dark meat here for sure. Yeah, so I, I went 4.5. I, I really liked it. Uh, what about you? Yeah, it, it, it's a heady broth, uh, both in terms of subtext and also intertext. Uh, just the narrative itself... Um, it's really a true gothic, you know, Victorian gothic story that some that the Brontes would have come up with, you know. Um, you have, for example, Violet's point of view, you know, it drove the narrative, the investigation contrasts from previous adventures in this way, except for maybe the engineer's thumb. But I think even Violet Hunter was much more of a protagonist than our engineer was. Hmm. Uh, 
Arthur Conan Doyle buries his clues subtly, and while there is something suspicious about Rue Castle from the get-go, it creates the right era of mystery to be intriguing. The presentation of the copper beaches outside of Winchester, the disturbed family cobwebs of the Rue Castles, and once again, like the engineer's thumb, how some of the best Sherlock Holmes stories are the ones driven by the client and not by our titular hero. Yeah, I agree. the suspense is palpable when Holmes and Watson with Violet as her guide enter the house and take part in the white-knuckle climax. I did find it wrapped up a little too neatly in the last paragraph. As a reader, I wanted what Alice Rucastle and her fiancé had to say. Yeah, um, I wouldn't. I, I would. I would totally support what you say. I'll just go a step further and say it was. It was kind of rushed, and I had to reread it a bit to get the whole Mrs. Toller explanation because it wasn't immediately clear to me how Alice yes. escaped from the room and what what was going on with the ladder. And apparently, he Fowler was keeping uh, Toller like drunk, giving him booze all the time so that he would gain access to the house. That stuff was rushed. You're absolutely spot on. I think that that could have been more more delicately revealed and and. I think the reader deserved it after following that much. And for a protagonist, I would have liked, you know, for our protagonist, our, our heroine, uh, Violet, I would have liked a letter at the end from from her to Sherlock Holmes telling her that she is in, in, an, in an institution. And then the funny quip at the end, you know, and roll credits, right? But, yeah, because she was great. She was, she was a really interesting character. She was, yeah. And I, I did like, at first, um, there was a couple of, there was a, there was a moment at the beginning of the story where... Uh, where when Holmes is first interviewing her, um, I think it's just the whole whole setup to her as well. Uh, this is after the whole conversation about you know the meta narrative. Pshaw, my dear fellow, what do the public, the great unobservant public, who could hardly tell a weaver by his tooth or a compositor by his left thumb, care about the finer shades of analysis and deduction? But indeed, if you are trivial, I cannot blame you. For the days of the great cases are past. Man, or at least criminal man, has lost all enterprise and originality. As to my own little practice, it seems to be degenerating into an agency for recovering lost lead pencils and giving advice to young ladies from boarding schools. Mm. I think that I have touched bottom at last. However, this note I had this morning marks my zero point, I fancy. Read it. He tossed a crumpled letter across to me. It was dated from Monahue Place upon the preceding evening and ran thus. And then he get Violet's letter. And, And then when we meet Violet, uh, pray take a seat, Miss Hunter. I shall be happy to do anything that I can to serve you. I could see that Holmes was favorably impressed by the manner and speech of his new client. He looked her over in his searching fashion and then composed himself with his lids drooping and his fingertips together to listen to her story. I mean, you got this cute, freckled, you know, copper-headed girl, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very possible, and given her forward manner and how she looks after herself and doesn't follow the... She's not a helpless damsel in distress. It's very possible that Holmes could have found something attractive about her in think, a way. I think there's evidence for that in the story. Not a lot, but at least enough to make it interesting. Almost a slightly attraction, but also fraternal confusion towards her in, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, there's meat for that for sure. But I'll save the gothic imagery for the environs because okay. there are some great passages in there. Um, but if not for this pat wrap-up, I'd give a full five points to the plot structure, so right. 4.5. So we're both on 4.5 for the first two elements of the story. All right. Interesting. Let's see if this continues into the third period. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jethro, or Jeffro, rather. I keep wanting to call him Jethro, but it's Jeffro. Um, yeah, Jeffro Rucastle. Yeah, his, his motivate. I mean, he's a sick guy, right? Individually, in terms of his characteristics, he's different to characters we've seen before. But his motive... Uh, for I mean, he's a greedy sod, and he's cut from the same cloth that we've had other 
Sherlock perpetrators, fathers who are looking to retain money from first marriages or to protect their financial interests and stopping their daughters and having relationships. Like this was a huge, and this comes back to what we were saying with the uh, um, the noble bachelor about how paranoid and how uh, selfish and and covetous, uh, grasping to borrow at Dickens. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to quote Christmas Carol. Um, how, how how grasping these father figures were and wanting to keep the wealth from their daughters. And if their daughters were going to marry, then they were going to make sure that the money somehow came back to them, you know? And, and this is, we've, we've seen this in so many, well, at least three, four stories now of the 12 have involved a father that wants to keep money from or for himself and his own livelihood and his daughter kind of imprisoned in that way. Hosmer Angel was probably the, uh, and Mary Sutherland, right? Who, who's, father yeah. was in disguise as Hosmer to kind of protect his interests. We got the same thing going on, but um, also like uh, Dr. Roylott in uh, the speckled band yes, as well. Yeah, exactly. Almost an improved, impressive version of that character. In my opinion, he doesn't have snakes, but he's got car. He, he's got Carlo. You got Carlo. And I think in terms of menacing as a character, he comes across much stronger than uh, Roylott did. Yeah. Because there is that nice side to him, you know, that we get where we don't get that much, with the doctor, do we? We get him just kind of being mean and nasty, but whereas here we've got we got the nicer side. Anyway, um, perpetrator, uh, yeah, I enjoyed him. I enjoyed the the way it all went. I did feel though that because this was a perpetrator whose motive we'd seen before, it was kind of like wash, rinse, repeat. You know, we'd seen this mm. uh, before through the story. So, I'm I'm interested in him. He certainly was creepy, and I thought that if he was going down the uh, down a different route where he wasn't looking to stronghold his monies, but instead do something a little bit more, more Edgar Allan Poe, a little creepier, a little more gothic. It would have been more, more X Files. More X Files would have been more appealing. So I went four, which is still a pretty decent mark in the big scheme of things. Okay, um, yeah, Jeffrey Rookcastle. <laughs> never trust a Jeffro. That's all I have to no. say. And never trust a guy that, that it... abuses his dog, right? Yeah, J E P H R O. When they spell it that way. Stay away from those people. Okay. Now, Jethro, J-E-T-H-R-O, is okay because, you know, he was on the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Yes, and Jethro Tull made great music. And Jethro, for Jethro Tull, of course. Yeah, so those are the cool Jethros. But Jethro, or Jethro, or however you pronounce it, stay away from those guys. That is a life lesson, folks. Life lesson. Uh, a piece of work in a person suit. Um, just to use that term that, um, for those who have seen Hannibal, Julian Anderson's character, she plays a psychologist to Hannibal Lecter, of all people. And she always talks about Hannibal in terms of he wears a person suit. He's smiling and all noble on the exterior, but there's a dark black pool of nothingness below. Um, and it's almost like if Carlo is almost like his demonic familiar, a projection of his demon self. Uh, he's unsettling at first and inherently rather cartoony, but Conan Doyle manages to give him the right menace to take him seriously. The gothic atmosphere making us suspicious and uneasy about him and gradually tearing away the layers of civility of the social superficiality to see the monster within. Mrs. Rucastle, as it's accomplished, is creepy as well. But the more I think on it, I see her as someone captive to this madman and his whims. Yeah, me too. And she is very... Uh, it's almost like there's a, char- uh, a person in there screaming to tell the truth and to get out of this situation. Yeah, it's, it's very much so, yeah. Because she's a second she wife, too. Second so she, wife as well. Like, so, you wonder what yeah. happened to the first wife, you know, now that you think about it. Yeah. I mean, especially the fact that, like, he pretty much tells uh, Violet that go in that room again and I'll feed you to Carlo, right? Like, yeah. 
there's something there's something not right about this guy. Like this isn't just Dr. Roylott, this uh, this scion of of a of an old British family who ended up losing his temper in India and becoming a drunkard and getting angry and becoming a terrible person afterwards. This guy is just a psychopath, in my opinion. I agree with you. Yeah, he's and a, he's, I think he's it's probably the, that. he's the creepiest, the the most threatening, or one of the most threatening figures we've met in the Holmes canon so far. Yeah, there's definitely since I did read it in high school, there's definitely a foreshadowing here. I think with Carlo and of course with uh, and and Rue Castle to the perpetrator in the Hound of the Baskervilles. But yeah, and that might have been that just might have been Doyle seeing something he really liked and wanting to expand on it. But we'll get there. Exactly, especially in terms of the nobility and whatnot as well. This yeah. insulated nobility that's almost become inbred now that is just deranged in a, in a strange way. Um, I wanted to mention in regard to um, the moment when, you know, where the monster reveals himself to uh, our heroine, Violet. So she gets caught going into the empty wing again. I was foolish enough to go into the empty wing, I answered, but it is so lonely and eerie in this dim light that I was frightened and ran out again. Oh, it is so dreadfully still in there. Only that, said he, looking at me keenly. Why, what did you think, I asked. Why do you think that I locked this door? I am sure that I do not know. It is to keep people out to have no business there. Do you see? He was still smiling in the most amiable manner. I am sure if I had known, well then, you know now. And if you ever put your foot over that threshold again, here in an instant the smile hardened into a grin of rage and he glared down at me with the face of a demon. I'll throw you to the Mastiff. That's creepy. Creepy shit. That is creepy shit. That's, Interesting it's clearly enough to... a line uttered by a man who thinks that women not just are below him, but uh, and a man not just of his class, but someone who, who feels as though they are just like objects to control and to dismiss and to manipulate and to threaten, you know? Yeah, I, I can see definitely the son takes after the father, most likely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, well, as, I think, as in I think Holmes' reading, this... the, the father takes after the son, but that's an, uh, an, I don't want to get into that. So yeah, so I don't know. Like even though like uh, we've seen this character slightly before, I think it's just a much improved and more intimidating version of people like like Rylot and Hosmer Angel and whatnot. And I just I don't know. I I really I found this guy really creepy, and he stood out to me. So as okay. a whole, I actually give perpetrators a five on this one. Awesome. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, five. Carlo is... included. Carlo included. Yeah, five is the score that I gave the environs for this story. Um, I thought that the, with me. The, the Copper Beaches were awesome. Um, I'm not even going to identify an extract or an excerpt, rather, to, to quote. I, I, I really liked it. The environment helped bring the story to life, and it, mm-hmm. it, it punctuated or maybe amplified is a better word. It amplified the, the atmosphere uh, of the story, made it, made it more sinister. I like the isolation of the place. Six miles doesn't feel like a long way away from um, Winchester itself, but... As Holmes and Watson discuss on the train, six miles in the country can mean an awful lot when it comes to crime and criminality. Um, I like to... And remember, it's Winchester, the ancient capital of England, right? The mm-hmm. Saxon capital of England. So where there's a modern city there with its cathedral and all of its amenities, outside there, you're in pagan lands. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with a, a different rule of law and society than is not, that's not even in English aristocracy. Mm. So That's true. And with that history, too, comes an awful lot of death, you know, if you want to go into it, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know that the contemporary reader would have picked up on all of that. But certainly, yeah, um, I I thought it was awesome. The interiors of the copper beaches themselves, you know, you've got the the very colorful drying room. Then you've got the very desolate wing. And it's very kind of uh, slasher film up there in that in that uh, that wing that's deserted, you know. Um, Yes, it's. It's yeah, it's properly creepy. Uh, I I love the outside. I love the description of the you know the the moonlight and the clouds and and the idea of this dog just kind of patrolling that neighborhood in a more believable way than a cheetah and a baboon patrolling. <laughs> you know, like I think you're right. I think there's a lot of improvements here on the speckled band. Um, and I'm wondering what was in Conan Doyle's mind when he rated this one higher or lower than the Speckled Band, which seems to be an improvement on a lot of those kind of uh, characteristic elements of atmosphere. But yeah, this this didn't leave me wanting anything from environment. I love the train ride. I love mm-hmm. the um, I love the externals and internals or interiors. I thought it was really really good stuff in this story and a lot for many different people to chew on. You know, because you even get descriptions of the nursery and. Um, like the the entrance way and the trees themselves, the skylights. Oh, it this is good on a micro and a macro level for environment. So, I, I think that uh, I don't have to say anything else. I went for a five too. Yeah, because uh, you know you you move from the academic discussion of Baker Street, you know, from London, yeah. the modern England to rural Hampshire into That's ancient right. England, as as I've been saying, right. And this is all on this train ride of kind of going into this, like almost very like Joseph Conrad, Conrad, you know, going into the heart of darkness, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there is that feeling about it, and it's Violet Hunter's insight and her spider sense that makes you feel like you're traveling into something really dark. And- I think her name is Violet, kind of like a that superficial being, kind of an innocent flower, you know, type. And then you have Hunter as your second name, which kind of connects her to Holmes, you know, the Basset Hound, right? It does. So, yeah. You know, it it it, uh, it kind of shows that she's a a, a female protagonist of of action in in this particular story. Um, now we're talking about you know the train ride to Winchester and the Gothic imagery and and whatnot. And there's like there's a passage here that I want to highlight uh, in part, which I think is key to the environs here. So by eleven o'clock the next day, we were well upon our way to the old English capital. Holmes had been buried in the morning papers all the way down, but after we had passed the Hampshire border, he threw him down and began to admire the scenery. It was an ideal spring day, a light blue sky reflected with little fleecy white clouds drifting across from west to east. The sun was shining very brightly, and yet there was an exhilarating nip in the air which had an edge to a man's energy. All over the countryside, away to the rolling hills around Aldershot, the little red and gray roofs of the farm settings peeped out from amid the light green of the new foliage. Ah, uh, look at all that beautiful pastoral, you know, Watson says, and Holmes is kind of just like, says, yeah, but, you I mean, because to, to Watson, you know, they're entering the picturesque part of England, you know, and to Holmes, you know, this is like Jonathan Harker taking the carriage from mm-hmm. the hotel inn to Dracula's castle, you know, like, this is kind of what's being, what's being suggested here. Do you know, Watson, said he, that it is one of the curses of a mind with a turn like mine that I must look at everything with reference to my own special subject? You look at these scattered houses, and you are impressed by their beauty. I look at them, and the only thought which comes to me is a feeling of their isolation, and of the impunity with which crime may be committed there. But the reason is very obvious. The pressure of public opinion can do in a town what the law cannot accomplish. There is no lane so vile that the scream of a tortured child or the thud of a drunkard's blow does not beget sympathy and indignation among the neighbors. And then the whole machinery of justice is ever so close that a word of complaint can set it going. And there is but a step between the crime and the dock. 
But look at these lonely houses, each to its own field, filled for the most part with the poor, ignorant folk who know little of the law. Think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which may go on year, year out in such places, and none the wiser. Had this lady who appeals for us to help gone to live in Winchester, I should never have had a fear for her. It is the five miles of country which makes the danger. Still, it is clear that she is not personally threatened. And then, of course, going into the environs here, where we go from the, you know, to the Celtic beginnings, the Roman fortifications, the seat of the Saxon kings, and this train ride from Winchester where the rural quote about, you know, it's just as menacing, perhaps more so. And this is what Holmes is trying to say here. And in Winchester, we have the Black Swan Inn, which is kind of a fitting name, um, given yeah, the fact is. that, you know, you have Violet the Swan, but mm-hmm. she's also kind of stronger and she works in the darkness. So that gives the black connotation, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of a fitting as the way station to the savage goings on in the Bronte-ish copper beaches outside the safe confines of the city, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah. It's a gothic smorgasbord, you know, the Copper Beaches itself. You got the creepy root castles, this locked rooms, the Black Mastiff, and all the forbidden atmosphere. You know, it just really brought this compelling story to life for me. So, Environs is a solid five all so, the way. Solid five for me too, buddy. Um, you said it better than I could. Uh, secondary characters, let's wrap this one up. I went for a four here for the secondary characters. Um, and, I, you know, I wanted to go five. I wanted to go five for... Um, for Violet herself being so insightful, but I felt like I, I felt like here's another example of a story where I didn't get the fleshed out appeal that I wanted. Um, I wanted more from Toller and his wife. I thought they were really interesting in their in their small roles, but again, very very cloudy. Let me just put this on the record. I'm going five for Violet Hunter. Okay, I'm going five for her because I think she's really really interesting. Um, but and and I liked her strength and her insight, all that stuff. But Mrs. Rucastle is, is is described as a specter, and I get that there's a purpose to that, but her story would have been interesting if it were fleshed out in a novel so we could understand how mm. she's kind of playing second fiddle to her husband or a, a longer story. Uh, Taller and his wife and their understanding, like that's just kind of shoehorned in there, and I feel like it's a level more complex than it needs to be to be uh, for for the length of the story involved, I mean, it's a level more complex than it needs to be. Uh, Mr. Fowler is a non-entity, yet so very important to the story. Same with Alice. Like, it would be good if they didn't just disappear, but Holmes had, you know, a little more to do with saving her. You know, like, I thought that would have been, it would have been kind of more compelling to have seen a confrontation between two Alices. You know, the one real and the one um, imagined, or sorry, um, mm. the one performing. Mm. That could have had... Uh, into, it could it could have made for a bit more impact with the denouement or the climax, I guess. I found um, interesting that like Mrs. Rucastle, you don't hear from her, mm-hmm. and yet she is the one who is still stuck with him at the end too, because she yeah, has to take yeah. care of Mr. Rucastle. Now, who knows? He could be really physically disabled at this point because of his injuries and whatnot and, and being looked after, but he's still the same monster buried under all that useless flesh now, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So I kind of, I kind of feel sorry for her, and I kind of, I do like the fact that the denouement, while Pat on Violet's point, the fact that you know that that the monster is still around in that sense, and now we're not talking about Carlo. Mm-hmm. You know, did Watson shoot the right dog here? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, the better ending, or I suppose the more, uh, the, the more fitting ending, the more uh, 
appealing ending maybe was if Rucastle died and Carlo got a, a new home, you know. But we... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm expecting him. It's like like so Watson going. That's a good boy, Carlo. You enjoy that. You enjoy that. Uh-huh. And then he adopts him or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't have happened. Um, I don't think like you were saying that dog rights were really much in the fore at the time. Although Holmes did have a great relationship with that dog in the sign of the four, didn't he? He did, yes. Toby. Toby, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I know four. I, I feel like I should go 4.5 from the misgivings because Violet is so strong. Um, but, you know, there's there's good stuff here, though, with the boy. You know, he's a little creature. Even though that's not fleshed out enough, uh, he is cool, and he does help kind of create the, the gothic horror of the place, a bit bit Damien-like in his own way. I, it's I, a good ensemble. It is. It's a very good ensemble. You're right. And maybe 4.5 is, is where I should go with this. There's something though that, the, I just feel like, I don't know. There's something that doesn't want doesn't want that point five in my in my deep consciousness, and I think I have to listen to that. So I'm gonna stay with my four. Uh, that brings me to a total of twenty two, which is my highest rated story to date. Wow. Yeah. Well, I went to four point five on this. I I I, I the four point five. I have all your feelings and sentiments about this about that story in terms of the supporting players. Tollers would have been like to have been fleshed out a bit more. Mrs. Rucastle, and uh, while I did love the ensemble, um, there was something missing for me as well. Mm-hmm. But I felt that like I was I was at, at a, I was I wanted to give it a five, but I and because of Violet herself. So, but because of this of the limitations, I went point five lower and went to four point five. Okay, understood and appreciated. That that was great. Uh, that's you at twenty three point five. That's also your highest peg story so far. Just to go in though, into as one as as a last sort of thing on the supporting players here, uh, you know, I like Violet because she acts more like the protagonist. You know, um, in terms of a damsel, in, instead of being a damsel in distress, in distress, she feels something is wrong in the Rue Castle estate. And while one may find her behavior rather invasive or stupid. She follows her heart just as much as her head. She's stubborn and she's likable. And I wish she had a better end to her story. Um, and the same I wish for the Tallers and the uh, other Rue Castles besides the uh, the Lord and Master. Yeah, when you say better end, you mean just, just more explained or more exposition or more involvement to, to kind of wrap up the bow? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, you get your choice of two musical selections, Josh, as... With the last one, we've got uh, two nice linked pieces of music, one and two. You go ahead and choose. I'll tell you what you don't get as well. Door one. Door number two. Oh, you went for door number two this time. Well, door number two, I'll get to in a second. But um, because Violet Hunter uh, lit the bat signal and because she needed a hero, I had uh, Chad Kroger from Nickelback singing Hero, the song from... Spider-Man, but we're not going to hear that. Instead, we're going to hear what I think is uh, maybe a more fitting piece overall, not just for this, but emblematic of all of these sort of father-controlling ugly stories where dads are trying to do something to to earn advantages. Um, It's the main title from the film called Charade, uh, written by Henry Mancini. You know Mancini? Oh, Mancini, the Pink Panther, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Charade uh, with Cary Grant. That's it, yep. And And Audrey Hepburn, I believe. That's right. And this is the main title from it. So uh, we'll use this in signing off. So it's it's just been fun. Yeah. And for Mancini, you know, and I I think uh, I dodge a bullet there because Chad Kruger, (laughs) feed me to Carlo, man. (laughs) Feed me to Carlo. Right. Well, fair enough.
I agree with you for what it's worth. It was it was more of an irreverent choice. Uh, this is, I think, this is the better the better tune, and we dedicate this not just to uh, this story, but to all the stories that involve a father trying to swindle or outmaneuver his uh, his his daughter from her wealth. Mm. So enjoy, and uh, yeah, from me over here in Scotland, it's goodbye. And from me over in Ottawa, this is the BFG signing off. <laughs>